This is Jeff Feldman, Food Safety EDU. This is March 22nd, 2020. It's a Sunday, and it's somewhere around uh, 1330. That'd be 1.30 p.m. Uh, in the afternoon, and it's a beautiful day outside. A lot of people, you know, strolling up and down the sidewalks because we're all locked into our neighborhoods, so... There was a couple of kids out there a while ago, and they were walking their baby ducks. One was a little brown duck, and one was a little light-colored duck. <laughs> but, uh, yeah, things things are interesting right about now. And during this time frame, I thought that I would uh, get back into podcast. Um, I'm uh, still trying to stay busy, and I'm still out at Coast Guard because we're essential personnel and we still have to keep up the mission. Um, but this weekend I wanted to take some time to continue on with my food safety uh, podcast. And this is um, a portion about the 2017 food code is what I'm after today just to continue um, describing and, and reading along with it. The food code, remember the TTP for the Coast Guard, uh, is based on the food code and the food safety tests are ANSI and Conference for Food Protection certified food safety tests, uh, SurfSafe, NEHA, National Registry. Um, and there was a new one, uh, goodness, I can't think, but they just emailed me and, and they want me to take a look at their system and include them on my list. And uh, so I still have to. I have to take a look and see. I'm sure they're great. Well, they're ANSI certified, so they're going to be great. And I'll have to come up with their name at some point and put it up. Um, but uh, uh, thank you for reaching out to me and, and letting me know that you have finally gotten uh, certified by ANSI and CFP, I would imagine. Um, and that's a good thing. It gives you more options. And it looks like it's uh, internet or, or, well, internet-based training and then so you do all the training online, in the comfort of your own home, you know, on your couch or in your bed, however you want to do that. And once you have that, then you find someone like me, a proctor, to give the uh, test to you in a, an approved um, environment. It's got to be in a classroom-style environment or an office where there's only two people, the proctor, which would be me, and you, the testee, uh, or the tester. I don't know if that went right. But anyway, the person who has to take the doggone test. Uh, and so we flip open the, the computer, and you can't have any notes. You can't have anything to drink. All you can do is click with the mouse and answer the 80 or 90 questions, depending on the, 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 um, the testing procedure. Uh, and, you know, no talking. I can't answer any questions at that time. I'm just a simple proctor at that time. Um, and normally you're allowed two hours to take the test. Most people finish about 45 minutes, some a little bit longer, maybe an hour, hour and a half, depending on the person and how quick or, or how comfortable you know your reading is. Um, the funny thing about these is each company, they write their tests, and it seems that they, they've written them at different levels, so at different grade levels. So a lot of cooks, a lot of people in the industry... Um, you know, you get into being a cook because you maybe dropped out of school or whatever, or you're from another country and, and English isn't your first language. And, and that's cool and that's okay. But these companies, um, they have, sometimes it's written at the 12th grade level, which is really difficult and there's a lot of failures. And then if it's 
written in a translated fashion to another language, but the translation isn't proper based on the tester, the person who's taking the test. Maybe they're from a different country, and it's a different dialect of their language, and then whoever wrote the test or translated the test into the test version in that language, they're using different words that aren't understandable to this other person. So, and I get it, you know, you go through the book and you use the same words that are in the book in order to take the test. So that's part of the learning process. Now here in California, you don't have to take a training, you can just simply take the test. And so that's where some of these people, you know, they'll try and do a, a review on their own and then they take the test and then they fail uh, if it's second language. So 12th grade level, then there's another company that writes at the 10th grade level, so it's a little bit more clear and straightforward. Then there's another company that writes at the 8th grade level, and that's more clear uh, and more understandable. And with that one, when I go into uh, restaurants that are different language, um, and I look at the wall and I see the certificate on the wall, I can tell, you know, they're smart. They're doing the, they're taking the test that has the best option of passing. Um, from that other company and so I won't say which company is which but uh, um, you know and now there's this third company so I don't know how they do theirs uh, or a fourth company I should say um, but they're ANSI certified and uh, they're inviting me to take a look so I'll take a look anyway thank you for that okay back to FDA food code now all of this training is based on the FDA food code so my Coast Guard TTP which is the tactics and training uh, procedures and their NAVMED, their, the, the, um, the tri-code from the uh, military, the tri-code, uh, is based on the food code. And then it's tweaked, of course, for to meet military operations. So out in the field and in the snow and in the desert and all these kind of things. So um, we just go off of the food code for our test. And we assume we're in some kind of city, some kind of restaurant. And we're just going to, you know, do the normal quote-unquote normal uh, operations of the day. All right, so I've already recorded a little bit on the first section of the preface, and I'm going to push this portion in front of that portion in order to line it all up. All right, thanks very much. Foodsafetyedu.org is the website. Uh, visit the podcast. You go to foodsafetyedu.org. And then you'll have the podcast sessions are there, plus the website, plus the links. Uh, and then there's the Twitter and the LinkedIn and the Facebook and the all the other things, the blogger. <laughs> so have fun with it. Enjoy it. I'm trying to do some YouTube videos in the kitchen also, um, just as a, a good visual. Um, I'm working on some podcast material and some training in a classroom online classroom session for my students in case I can't get back over to CIA and give face-to-face -face, then I'll have it all set up online training where we'll do an interactive I think so we'll see how that all works but uh, I don't know about how long we're gonna be locked in something on the this morning said we're locked in till like June um, but I don't know I have to look all right so I'll stop here, and I'll put this portion in front of that portion. In the preface section of the FDA Food Code 2017, so this is, this is 2020 already, 
and I was waiting for a supplement to come out, and I'm not seeing it. And then next year, we'll have the new food code again. But um, much of it stays the same. So when the supplement comes out or the new food code, I'll look for any um, changes and I'll update from there. So this is 2017 food code. This is the preface section. In the preface section, there are 10 blocks of information. And the first one is uh, foodborne illness estimates, risk factors, and interventions. So on my website and in my training, I have uh, what I call the crib sheet. And the crib sheet is a one single page with much of the information. So what I have is when I have my students in the classroom, we pull out the crib sheet and that way we can reference back to that crib sheet often uh, so that it's more than three times. I try and touch on it more than three times because the more you touch on it, the more it becomes familiar. And so I try real hard to go more than three times in a day on the risk factors, right? We have those five major risk factors, which we'll get to, um, and the five interventions that uh, uh, go along with. But here, this is number one in the preface, and there's 10 different areas. So number one, foodborne illnesses, foodborne illness estimates, risk factors, and interventions. So foodborne illness in the United States is a major cause for personal distress, preventable illness, and death, and avoidable economic burden. Scallon et al., 2011 A and B, estimates that foodborne, so Scallon et al., and then later on we have another researcher et al., meaning all of their research and everything, all the people they work with. So this person, this researcher, did a study and posted it in 2011. And he estimates that, or the person estimates, that uh, foodborne illness diseases cause approximately 48 million illnesses, 128,000 hospitalizations, and 3,000 deaths in the United States each year. Never mind the rest of the world. If you look at WHO, the World Health Organization's website, they'll have their numbers for the whole world because they keep track of all that. This is just for the United States. So 3,000 deaths based on foodborne illness, never mind waterborne illness or some other illness. So this is foodborne illness. Previous to this 2011 report by this researcher, there was another set of numbers that were higher. It was 76 million illnesses and 5,000 deaths, and I don't remember how many hospitalizations, but currently by this research, it's 48 million, 128,000 hospitalized, and 3,000 deaths in the United States each year. So how many days are in a year? 365 days in a year, and we have 3,000 deaths by foodborne illness each year. The occurrences, uh, the occurrence of approximately 1,000 reported disease outbreaks local, regional, and national each year highlights the challenges for preventing these infections. So, you know, they do the study, they keep the records now, CDC, FDA, uh, Public Health Service, they all work together in tandem, and they compile all this information, and then the major researchers and scientists and doctors and all those people are really on top of it, they're trying to be anyway, um, and and so there's multiple outbreaks. And then there's the people that don't go to the hospital. So here in the next paragraph, it says most foodborne illnesses occur in people 
who are not part of recognized outbreaks. So you get a little queasy stomach or something and you stay home from work. Okay, for many victims, foodborne illnesses or illness results only in discomfort or lost time from the job. For some, especially preschool age children, so the very young, older adults in healthcare facilities or just older adults in general, and those with impaired immune systems is what they say here. So compromised immune systems. Uh, foodborne illness is more serious and may be life-threatening. So people who can't fight it off, either they're very young, so they're still building their immunity, they're very old, so their immunity is weakening with age, or they have some type of compromised immune system, um, HIV, AIDS, this, this uh, corona uh, virus that's going on right now, um, someone on, uh, who has cancer on chemotherapy, they can't fight off these foodborne illnesses. So the annual cost of foodborne illness in terms of pain and suffering, reduced productivity, and medical costs are estimated to be between 10 and $83 billion a year. As stated by Mead et al., this is another researcher, uh, the nature of food and foodborne illness has changed dramatically in the United States over the last century. While technological advances such as pasteurization and proper canning have all but eliminated some disease, new causes of foodborne illnesses have been identified. Surveillance of foodborne illness is complicated by several factors. The first is under-reporting. So people don't always report. Like I said, somebody has a queasy stomach, they stay home. They don't go to the doc. They don't report anything. Although foodborne illness can be severe or even fatal, milder cases are often not detected through routine surveillance. Second, many pathogens transmitted through food are also spread through water or from person to person, thus obscuring the role of foodborne transmission. Obscuring. So it's kind of, it's hiding that it may have come from food, it may have come from water, it may have come from, you know, somebody touching a doorknob uh, with some uh, foodborne virus. So it's obscured. It, it's not clear that it's a foodborne transmission. Finally, pathogens or agents that have not yet been identified and thus cannot be diagnosed cause some proportion of foodborne illness. So these are those emerging pathogens, just like this coronavirus. This is March, what's the date today? March 22nd, which is Sunday. And the whole state of California is in uh, uh, shelter in place, right? All of California, New York, every state and across the world because of this coronavirus, um, it's an emerging pathogen. It's an emerging something. Where it's coming from, so they have the Wuhan, um, the video of, of the Wuhan market, and uh, it's going around, and it's, I mean, there's blood everywhere, and there's no cleaning and sanitizing, and it's all open air, and all the different animals are hanging out together, and there's bats and cats and dogs and squirrels and, you know, whatever else. So it's very interesting. But over time, kind of like, you know, 100 years ago was the Spanish flu um, that killed a lot of people. Now we have this coronavirus that uh, looks like it's doing the same. So hopefully we can combat that. Okay, back to my FDA food code. Outbreak data repeatedly identify five major risk factors 
five major risk factors related to employee behaviors and preparation practices in retail and food service establishments as contributing to foodborne illness. They are improper holding temperatures, so you have to make sure you're holding your food either hot or cold. Inadequate cooking temperatures, you have to cook your food properly. Undercooked or raw food is not safe. A lot of people want sushi. A lot of people want a medium rare burger because they like it that way. That's great. But the fact is, it's not safe potentially because you haven't cooked off whatever pathogen might be there. Um, one, uh, one person, so on the food safety podcast, um, you know, they're saying you don't cook your salad which is absolutely true. So we have to make sure we wash that salad and get it from that approved source, which is coming the next one. Food from unsafe sources. That's an issue. You have to know you get where you're getting your food from. Um, using contaminated equipment. So if your tongs, if you're stirring raw chicken or you're plucking raw chicken out of a cambro and then you're laying it a pan and then you stir a little bit, but then you use those same tongs to take that cooked chicken now out of the pan and onto the plate but you're using that contaminated tong because it still has some raw juices on it maybe a little higher that can drip down onto the cooked chicken so contaminated equipment is huge cutting boards we have color-coded cutting boards to help us realize that there has to be a physical barrier so in the tong and the raw chicken uh, scenario you have two sets of tongs. You have the tongs that you're going to use the raw chicken to load the pan, then you put those tongs down. Now you're going to use clean tongs in order to uh, serve the food. So you're going to cook up the, the chicken, make sure it's all 165, 165 degrees Fahrenheit or better or higher um, to kill off any pathogen that's in that chicken. And then you put it in the plate and you use a clean set of tongs or spoons or serving utensils or something like that. Okay. So the five risk factors, improper holding temperatures, hold it properly, either cold or hot. Inadequate cooking, cook your foods properly. You have to cook your chicken to the right temperatures. You have to cook your hamburgers to the right temperatures. You have to cook different foods to the proper temperatures. Using contaminated equipment causes problems. So make sure you're using clean, sanitized, and be aware of it. You have to be purposeful in the kitchen. You can't just, you know, um, be lackadaisical or, or willy-nilly. You have to know what the heck you're doing. You are professionals. You're supposed to be professionals. So you pay attention and you do it right. Food from unsafe sources. Purchase your food from a, an approved source. You have to get it from there. A lot of people want to grow their own herbs in the garden out in the backyard. Can't do that. Not unless you have an agreement and a variance from the health department in your jurisdiction. Okay. And then for personal hygiene, make sure all your people are clean, safe, and healthy when they come to work. Um, if they're vomiting and diarrhea, they need to be excluded. Uh, there's certain exclusions and there's certain restrictions based on what it is. Okay. The food code addresses controls for risk factors and further establishes five key public health interventions to protect consumer health. Specifically, these interventions are demonstration of knowledge. Every single employee needs to be able to demonstrate knowledge and good habits. 
So when the inspector walks in the door on their health inspection check sheet, number one says demonstration of knowledge, which means they need to talk to the PIC, the person in charge, but they also need to watch, observe, and talk to the employees that are on the line and make sure that they know what the heck they're doing. So a demonstration of knowledge would be verbal and observation and having proper habits, you know, washing hands, <clears throat> using clean sanitized uh, surfaces and equipment, things like that. Number two of the interventions is employee health controls. So the PIC, which is the person in charge who runs the show, when they hire employees, they give them the training and the, they make the agreement um, that if the employee is sick for whatever reason, they report that to the PIC. The PIC can then make the determination to either restrict or exclude that employee uh, based on the information. So employee health controls, they need to keep sick people away from the food so they don't contaminate the food. Uh, controlling hands as a vehicle of contamination would be number three. Controlling hands as a vehicle of contamination because hands are the biggest, biggest vehicle of contamination. We touch everything. Doorknobs, tongs, money, cash registers, uh, fryer baskets that are all dirty with, you know, all raw chicken stuff when you're deep frying chicken or, or uh, fish or whatever. Um, so you touch it first, throw it in the basket, and then you grab the handle. Well, now you've just contaminated the handle of that basket. So hands is a vehicle of contamination. Again, you're the professional. You have to have good habits. You have to pay attention. Take your time. Be fast, but take your time and, and have those barriers between your hands and the cooked food. Okay. So time and temperature parameters for controlling the pathogens. Pathogens are illness-causing microorganisms. So we have to, they're alive, right? They're going to grow. Uh, some. Some will grow and some pathogens aren't. Some are viruses. They're not going to grow until they get inside you. But the bacteria, they need time and temperature and uh, in order to grow and thrive. So we want to prevent the rapid and progressive growth of the pathogenic bacteria. So this intervention is about time and temperature control. So you have to watch your times and temperatures. So you're going to work quickly within, if you're going to have the food and the temperature danger zone, you're going to work quick. Okay. If, if uh, keep it cold, keep it hot, but don't let it stay in the temperature danger zone for too long. Okay. And then finally, the consumer risk advisory message. So consumer advisory means if you go to the gro uh, grocery store um, and you look at the meat or the fish uh, case, on the front of the fish case, there's going to be a big sign that says, these fish may contain mercury, so eat at your own risk. If you go to a sushi house, there's going to be at the bottom of the menu, it'll say, these product are undercooked or raw, so eat at your own risk. If you go to a hamburger joint and you look at their menu, down at the bottom it'll say, these foods are undercooked, eat at your own risk. This is the consumer risk advisory message. Um, and if you go to the grocery store, not grocery, well, maybe grocery store also, but certain stores, um, and you're going to buy some cups and glasses and things like that, they have a sign. It's a Prop 65 sign here in California. It says if you drink out of this glass and the glass has gold around the rim of it and you're drinking wine out of that glass with gold around the rim, the acid from the wine may leach the metal from that uh, the metal around the rim, and then you're drinking this metal, whatever it is. It might look gold. It might be something else. So it's a Prop 65 warning 
for those type of things. But these are what's called consumer risk advisory messages, and they're meant to uh, protect you, you know. Uh, everybody wants to have sushi. Well, that's raw. Everybody wants to have oyster shooters. Those are raw. You know, in the ocean, there are acceptable amounts of shit in the water that gets into these animals, and then you eat them. So you're eating a, an acceptable amount of whatever every time you eat these things. If you're very young, we can't have any undercooked foods offered on the child's menu. If you're very old and you're in a nursing home or a hospital, the nursing homes and the hospitals are not able to serve certain types of foods in those operations because you're dealing with high-risk populations, okay? You know, you can choose to eat these undercooked or raw things because you want to and you think it's cool, and that's great. That's good on you. Uh, no guarantee you're playing Russian roulette every time you do it. Okay, the first two interventions are found in Chapter 2, and the last three are in Chapter 3 of this FDA food code. So later on, we'll get to Chapter 2, and then finally we'll get to Chapter 3. So the Food and Drug Administration, the FDA, endeavors to, to assist the approximately 75 state and territorial agencies and more than 3,000 local departments that assume primary responsibility for preventing foodborne illness and for licensing and inspecting establishments within the retail segment of the food industry in their areas. The industry segment consists of more than 1 million establishments and employs a workforce of over 16 million people. This is based on the research on the FDA food code. That was section number one in the preface. And I'll get to section number two in a second.